0: oh man, Che, you can't leave me hanging like this. I need to know what happens at the police station. You're also leaving me hanging on, do I buy the Mythic GM emulator, or do I buy the Mythic game? I mean, is the GM emulator also part of the game? Do I get both if I buy the game? Maybe you need to do a review.
1: Hello Rescuers, my name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about finding your way back to playing tabletop roleplaying games. Today's episode is a response to an extended message from Frank T. You heard the start of the message at the top of the show, but Frank has some very specific questions in relation to episode 408, Delving Deeper Solo. Because the questions he is asking are extensive, I thought that the best response would be another episode. So here we are, This is Season 4, Episode 10, Going Mythic. Let's hear what Frank had to say.
0: Here I am, pulling the other type of Jackson, neglecting my own podcast, and leaving an extremely long message on somebody else's. You know, I'm feeling like you're... Solo gaming episodes are a great way to test adventures. Maybe a great way to learn rules for games. Also, based on the episode, it seems like they would be a a really fun way to create an adventure. It may be slightly linear, but you could probably come up with something that at least was a, a, an adventure starter. I really like the possibilities, and I think I might have to give it a try myself and see what I can come up with in terms of creating an on-the-fly adventure. And since I haven't had a chance to look into the Mythic system, whether it's the GM emulator or the complete system, What are your thoughts? Is this something that you could do a GM-less game with a group? It sounds like it could be a fun exercise, if nothing else, where everybody could take part in adding bits and pieces to the story. There, There seems to be a lot of input from the player as to what's exactly happening. I'd love to know more about the specifics of the GM emulator and what kind of things, what kind of things can I expect? What are the pitfalls? I'm still thinking a very thorough review might be a good place to start. And maybe I missed it, but is this your new season? Solo play? If so, I'm really looking forward to it. Sometimes, that's the only kind of play I think I have available to me. And I haven't even tried it yet. Unless, of course, you want to include the Lone Wolf book series or the Steve Jackson Sorcery series, which I played way back in the day in high school. And I recently picked up Warhammer Quest for my mobile, but I don't think those really capture the essence of role-playing, much like you described in your podcast. I think that the story element, the open sandbox concept of creating the story from the table is missing from those books. And I, I'm, I'm always looking for a way to not just play solo, but a way to get into the game quickly with zero prep. This almost sounds like it could be a, a, a good choice. What do you think? I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about all of this.
1: Create dynamic roleplaying adventures without preparation, for use as a standalone game, or as a supplement for other systems. Those are the words on the cover of Mythic. And by the way, if you're searching for the game online, it's listed as Mythic Roleplaying. For new listeners, this is the solo role playing tool that I use most frequently, and which formed the focus of my last Saturday episode, Delving Deeper Solo. In that episode, I was trying to provide a worked example of the game, And I wasn't sure how that was going to be received, but as ever on Anchor, I needn't have worried. Check out these two call-ins, one of which you might have heard before, but which I repeat because, well, because it's so cool. Hey, Jason here. Just calling about your solo play podcast. Excellent podcast. It does help. I think that's a great example. You know, and it's interesting because it shows where your thoughts are. Because I think, like, film noir, like detective stories. So I was thinking maybe you were a PI that had lost his memory or PI that was being questioned by the police or wanted for something, right? But
0: I think it was a great example. I thank you for putting that out there and taking the time to put all this content out. It's greatly appreciated. You
1: do do a great job. Don't second guess yourself. And please keep up the great work. Take care. Bye. Hi, Jay. I really appreciated that solo deep dive episode, um, especially you breaking down the different elements of what might be related to solo, but weren't particularly solo play in and of themselves. And that demonstration you did was extremely helpful for me. Just to see how simply you kept things and how that kind of fed into keeping the momentum going and uh yeah it's kind of struck me of i mean it'd be a great thing to do with you know just taking maybe the opening scene of uh, a film or a book and just using it as a leaping off point for a random adventure and just seeing where that goes so uh yeah i might play around with that thanks it seems like Frank wasn't the only one who wanted to know what happened in the police station. Thanks to you both, Jason and Spencer, a.k.a. Freethrawl. Uh, thanks, guys, for taking the time to send me some positive waves. It is muchly appreciated, chaps. Anyhow. What is mythic? It's probably best for me to quote from Tana Pigeon, the author of Mythic. Quote... Most RPGs operate under the principle that there are players and there is a GM. The GM prepares all the details of an adventure and then runs the players through that adventure. This usually requires a great deal of preparation on the part of the GM and the handling of many details. Mythic is different in that it requires no preparation from the GM. Mythic adventures are meant to be played off the cuff with perhaps a few minutes of brainstorming to come up with the initial setup. Mythic can also be played entirely without a GM. The same mechanics in Mythic that allow a GM to run an adventure without preparation also allows a group of players to do without the GM." Quote. Thus, we have the premise of the rule set. So yeah, Frank, you can run Mythic with a group of players and no GM, relying on the GM emulator within to take that role and allowing the players to enjoy the adventure together. I have tried this only once with limited success. The reason it was limited in terms of success was simply because my fellow players could not quite shake away from the idea that the GM was being emulated by a game engine, and that, I think, is an important point to come back to. As Frank intimated in his message, there is a separate product produced by Wordmill Games, the publisher of both, called Mythic GM Emulator. This is my preferred product because it drops the stuff in Mythic Roleplaying to handle the rules of play and simply retains the GM emulator, leaving Mythic ready to be the GM without getting in the way of your favourite set of roleplaying game rules. In other words, the question of which product to buy comes down to what you want the product to do. If you want a complete, rules like, narratively driven, and player focused roleplaying game which will be played without there being a human GM, then Mythic Roleplaying is the complete experience. If you want to play without a GM, but aim to use another set of role-playing game rules, then you just need the Mythic GM emulator. Simple. So, Mythic. Shall we take a look through the rulebook and see what's within? Come with me. To begin, let's take a peek inside Mythic Roleplaying. The main rulebook that was first published in 2003, and then revamped into its current form in 2006... It's written by Tana Pigeon and published by Wordmill Games. There are thirteen chapters plus an introduction. It's uh, one hundred and forty-six pages in total. That seems like a lot on first thoughts, but this book covers a lot of ground. For me, it was an eye-opening exploration of what it means to roleplay and to play a role-playing game. I think I've said it before, but Mythic for me was groundbreaking in ways that 15 or so years later seem pretty obvious. But let's start at the introduction. There is a lovely piece that tries to answer the perennial question, what is a role-playing game? Quote, Those veterans who are still with me are probably groaning now. You have seen this headline in various forms about a zillion times. For those of you new to this genre of games, you're in for a treat. A role-playing game is basically virtual reality. People sit around a table, pretend to be characters, just like in a movie, and go on quests and missions. The action in a role-playing game, or RPG, takes place entirely in your imagination. Your character can be anyone, or anything, you want to be. There are no limits. Quote. Following this, there's a lengthy glossary of RPG terminology. And that's interesting in and of itself, but there is one term that I hadn't seen before. Back in 2003, even as a veteran gamer, quote, emulator. I call Mythic a game master emulator because you can use Mythic to take the place of a real live GM. You will see what I mean later, end quote. Enigmatic much. Chapter one. Chapter 1 is entitled Mythic Adventures. It starts with a discussion on how the life of a GM is, frankly, a huge weight of responsibility, and, to quote from the author, a bummer. This chapter engages with the whole question of gaming without a game master. The subheading, no GM? What are you talking about, Willis? That shows, I think, how Tana approaches the topic. There is a realisation that this is a strange concept to most role players, and it certainly was for me. Kind of. Remember, I've been gaming solo for most of my life. I used to play Risk alone in my bedroom as a kid. And I used to enjoy the rise and fall of the Third Reich, a hex and chit strategy war game of fair complexity. I used to play that all alone in my bedroom as a kid. And I'm going to have to admit, I used to love finding out how to win World War II with the Reich and how to defeat the same Reich within the shortest possible time frame as well. When I started role-playing... I would spend many hours creating characters, perhaps with RuneQuest, Palladium Fantasy, Rollmaster, And then I went on to create worlds and starships and animals with Traveller. I guess I was a pretty weird kid, even by gamer standards. Or at least that's how it felt to me at the time. But my point is, I've been playing solo for most of my life. When I read Tarna Pigeons Mythic, I was actually entranced by the idea that I could properly play my favourite RPGs without anyone else true solo role-playing. But that's not initially how Tana pitches the idea. She begins with the suggestion of playing with no GM, multiple players. Quote, Everyone whip out your character. Players decide on an opening scenario and perhaps a few details or two and Mythic takes it from there. All action is decided through the asking of yes-no questions and the application of logical principles. By answering questions, the adventure moves along with the occasional random event throwing players a curveball. The action is broken into scenes, just like in a movie, to keep everything straight, End quote. The solo option is the second on the list. The baseline expectation, and I think the way Tana plays herself, is by working with a group of players where no one is the GM. Mythic takes the place of the GM for her group, The chapter then moves into the most important concepts in using the mythic system, the importance of logic and interpretation. In short, quote, logic is used in mythic to figure out what happens next. Just as all things are logical in mythic, all answers to important questions are arrived upon through interpretation. In addition to logic and interpretation, improvisation is mythic's third linchpin that makes it all work, end quote. Honestly, this chapter alone is worth a read and serious thought when you were considering how role-playing games really work. To me, this consideration of how the players in a game can be leveraged to logically infer details, interpret them, and then improvise the outcome, this lies at the core of the question of the relationship between GM and players in a traditional RPG. Watching The Secrets of Blackmoor, a film about the early development of the RPG by Dave Arneson's Twin Cities Wargaming Group, one of the interviewees is heard to say that without the GM, you can't have a role-playing game. I had to smile because I know this simply is no longer true in the literal sense. Honestly, I would always prefer a human game master, but Mythic proves that you don't need one. Chapter 1 continues. This is a chunky chapter. Here's where the Mythic role-playing game, as in the specific system of Mythic, where that impinges upon the idea of a GM emulator. Because the next section goes into details and ranks. Giving things in an adventure, from characters to objects, a descriptive element. What are termed details and ranks. The example is given of asking the question... On the fly, mid-game, how strong is this window? The detail for the window is its strength. We might decide that the rank is weak. There's a ladder of words that I am almost certain is derived from fudge, which was later developed into the very famous fate system. You probably know what I mean, but in case you don't, the ladder runs from the weakest to the strongest ranks. Instead of numbers, the ranks are descriptive words minuscule, weak, low, below average, average, and so on up to superhuman. The numeric value of each rank is twice that of the rank below, thus minuscule is basically four times weaker than weak, and minuscule is also eight times more feeble than low. Personally, while I love fudge when I came across it, I found that different people fall over themselves in understanding the different meaning between relative terms. In other words, One person's minuscule is smaller than another person's low, and vice versa. Numbers help, I find, in quantifying things. But hey, some folk are okay with descriptive terms. They certainly are less jarring in a sentence. I have low strength. That certainly has a lot more meaning than I have eight strength. Well, at least until you get your head around the fact that the average strength is ten and the highest possible strength is twenty. Horses for courses, as they say. Anyway, chapter one ends with a traditional one-page example of play that illustrates just how Mythic might be played. Chapter two. Well, chapter two is entitled Character Creation, and it's all about, well, you guessed it, creating characters. You've got two choices, though, free-form characters or point-based characters. Before we get into that, however, I would like to comment on the art in Mythic. Basically, on page 13, as you get into chapter 2, you get the first line-art drawing of a horrendous, well, at least in my opinion, a horrendous style. It's a bikini babe with two ridiculous swords, and basically I hate it. And I dislike almost every illustration that's in Mythic. I've had stick for this on social media too. Just recommending Mythic as a solo engine has had more than one person ping me in and complain about the art. And yeah, basically, I concur. The art is, basically, cheap and tacky. My apologies to the artist and the publisher for this negative comment, but I am really not going to lie. I think the art is poor. To Please, however, please, don't let the art stop you from reading Mythic. Anyway, character creation. Freeform or point-based? The former is basically for quick games or for players who don't like point-based systems. In freeform mode, you simply come up with an idea and you stat the character any way that seems appropriate. Obviously, the point-based approach gives this more structure and helps to generate characters who are balanced in relation to each other. Mythic roleplaying uses seven basic attributes. I think it's strength, agility, reflex, IQ, intuition, willpower and toughness. And all of those basically define the character's fundamental statistics. To this, Mythic goes on and adds abilities, which are additional talents or innate personal resources. This is the usual fare for narrative RPGs, the kind of descriptive abilities that flesh out the character concept. You know, if you're playing a spy, then you might decide the character has, I don't know, wine knowledge, for example. Abilities are essentially a list of what the character can do. Next comes strength and weaknesses. Everyone has these You add them to the character with a simple statement as to what the strength or weakness is and when to apply a rank shift, Um, and that's a little mechanical thing, and any special rules that pertain to it. There are some examples given, such as Quick Draw as a strength or Weapon Inept as a weakness. These give a plus one or minus one in most cases. A plus or minus two is considered a more serious modifier in Mythic. But on the whole, you are left to devise your basic strengths and weaknesses for yourselves you know there are some simple points of guidance in the book now for me this was a weakness of the game because i'm going to say this really clearly i hate having to invent abilities but hey more narrative players may get better mileage after sorting the attributes abilities strengths and weaknesses you just have a note section to contend with on the character sheet This is the usual narrative material like age, family connections, affiliations and equipment. There's a special type of note called a favour, which is basically a modifier characters can have when rolling on the fate chart. Think of favours as a storehouse of luck, a fate type mechanism if you like. The usual narrative game, get a bonus type of thing. You start out with 50 favour points and you can gain more at the end of scenes. In Mythic you can spend up to 25 points at a time to modify a result on the fate chart when you ask a question. Think of this as being equivalent to shifting the result on a D-percentile die roll on a 1-for-1 basis, thus, basically spending 10 favour points gives you a plus or minus 10% modifier to a given roll. This mechanism gives more control to players when dealing with the shifting sands of fate. Well, anyway, basically, the rest of Chapter 2 is the point-based system, And then, at the end, there are some examples in outboxes. Um, Basically, that's characters done. Chapter 3. Okay, well, that's about the fate chart. It's basically the heart of Mythic. It's the mechanism that absolutely drives the game. Um, For this, I think it's best to grab a quotation from the book. Quote, All action is moved along in Mythic by asking yes-no questions. Are there monsters in the room? Does my car jump the chasm? Can I successfully cast this spell? Does my sword kill the troll? Did I persuade the cop to let me go? Normally, such questions would be asked to a game master who is keeping track of such details. In a mythic adventure, the GM can be replaced. The rules of mythic are designed to answer all questions put to it and in a logical manner, as long as they are phrased as a yes-no, So, the fate chart is a matrix table. It has the acting rank on the left-hand side and the difficulty rank along the bottom. For a character taking an action, we cross-reference those two details and the table gives us three numbers, one of which is the much larger one than the other two and sits between those other two as well. In addition to the acting rank versus difficulty rank, which is used to character action against fixed odds, you also see, on the right-hand side of the matrix, an odds ladder, which can be cross-referenced with what is termed as the chaos factor, also along the bottom. But honestly, by now, I've probably lost you, so I'd recommend looking at the table on page 26 of Mythic if you can. If not, just take my word that it's a fairly elegant invention. Personally, because I don't use the Mythic RPG and just use the GM emulator... I prefer the simpler version that's in the GM Emulator book, but hey, who's quibbling? Examples probably help here. So, we're given the example of Sven arm wrestling, where Sven's strength and that of his opponent are cross-referenced to give a percentage chance of a yes answer to the question, does Sven win the arm wrestling match? There's also the example of Susan picking a lock, which uses the odds column and cross-references with the chaos factor to answer the question, Does Susan pick the lock? In short, the game is played by asking yes-no questions and rolling on the table. There are three numbers, as I mentioned. The basic yes result as a percentile die roll, and then either side of it, there's a low exceptional yes value and a high exceptional no value. All of these are a percentile. The D100 is a roll low mechanism. Roll under the target number for a yes. And I think you probably get the gist. What's this chaos factor thingy? Well, that's a number that illustrates how crazy and out of control the story is right now. It's rated from 1 to 9, low being very unchaotic. If the scene goes the player's way, you lower the chaos factor by 1. If things are not going their way, you raise the chaos factor. A high chaos factor makes yes answers much more likely on the fake chart. Oh, and the attentive listener will realise that you can cheat with this system. I mean, you can simply word your questions to make certain outcomes more likely. And basically, there's a nice outbox addressing this issue in Mythic. In short, don't be a dick. The way you guard against it is by other players calling out crappy play. So, once you have the fate chart, you get a section on how to use it, both with Mythic roleplaying and when interfacing with another RPG game engine. There's stuff on modifiers, there's... This bit on bundling questions which is interesting that's a way to combine several yes no questions into a single check basically cutting down on the dice rolling when you're applying modifiers and then the text turns to when to roll and when to make it up and there's a big discussion on improvisation versus rolling in mythic you're supposed to use logic and improvisation more at least whenever you can you walk into an old creepy house Is there a stairway to a second floor? Honestly, that seems logical, so I don't bother asking the fate chart. We just assume that it exists and we carry on. This is where the players at the table bring their expectations to the fore. It leads to collaborative play and the curious experience of seeing how far you can improvise before someone disagrees. As soon as you can't agree, phrase a yes-no question and ask the fate chart. It's quite elegant in action. Anyway, finally, the chapter provides some resolution charts. Now, these are, in the parlance of the OSR, a means to record a ruling made in the game on the fly. When a GM would normally make a ruling, and then hopefully be consistent in keeping to that ruling each time it comes up in the future, a resolution chart performs in a kind of similar role. Usually, this comes up in relation to a detail in the campaign world that you are playing within. The resolution chart allows you to codify a specific new mechanism for a given situation so you don't have to reinvent the wheel next time. The example given is in answer to the question, does the mage successfully cast the spell? And the example details what you need, you know, all the required elements for a spell. It details the magic ability and the rank in it that you need, what modifiers apply and how the results exceptional yes, yes or no, or exceptional no, how those results play out. To my mind, this is the the make-up-the-rules-you-feel-you-need-for-your-world bit. Personally, I found it lazy and clunky, but then I do like my games to have this sort of shizzle worked out up front. I like my crunch. But if you are into light and low-detail games, you'll probably find it an interesting section to read. At this point, I feel like this review will take about four weeks to complete, and so I'm going to summarise what else is in the book and tell you to go and read the damn thing for yourself. So, chapter four covers task resolution. Chapter five, it details combat and gives some worked examples and lots and lots of awful art, but yeah, combat. Chapter six talks about randomness. This is an interesting chapter on how to create random events in your game. In short, between scenes, you sort of check, based on the chaos factor, if your expected scene comes up. If it doesn't, you generate a random event by rolling on three random tables to generate an event focus, an event action, and an event subject. The focus is the thing that is acted on by the random event, while the action and event rolls give you two words to inspire something – I don't know, maybe I'm in the hospital and the event focus is an NPC action and I roll Malice Friendship. I can interpret that by rolling a random NPC, say I get the nurse, and decide that perhaps the nurse is pretending to be my friend for a malicious reason. Perhaps she needs information, so we describe her asking me questions or something. Anyway, go read the chapter. Chapter 7 is called The Adventure and is about how to structure an emergent adventure. Because Mythic doesn't have prepped adventures, and because the action emerges from the play in a free-form manner, which is driven by yes-no questions and random events, well, you need a little bit of game structure to guide the process. Chapter 7 is all about how to do that. It ingeniously revolves around tracking four things, really. So there are two lists, NPCs and threads. There's the chaos factor, and then there's the scenes that you play. The Threads list is just a list of ongoing goals the characters have committed to. So, you know, this is pretty ingenious stuff, to be honest. Chapter 8 is about GM emulation. Um, Basically, that's the preparation you do need to do to run a game in Mythic. And essentially, this is about coming up with your game world and first scene, and how that all plugs into the adventure stuff discussed earlier. It's quite a short chapter. Chapter 9 is all about world creation in detail. It's short, and it has a worked example. Chapter 10 is about character advancement. Chapter 11 is about converting other game characters to mythic, so it gives tables to convert 3D6 attribute scales to mythic ranks. There's also a 5-dot conversion, and there's a percentile skill conversion. And yes, given that there's a 5-dot conversion, obviously Tana was into the world of darkness back in the day. Anyway, included is a scale for dice damage conversion too, so all the interesting stuff from the designer standpoint, and that's in Chapter 11. Chapter 12 is entitled Notes and Suggestions and is just an extended Q&A, Frequently Asked Questions, plus some advice. Chapter 13 is a full extended example of play. Now, when we say extended, we mean it. it's 14 pages long. An extended example, it certainly is. And then at the back of the book, there are some charts and tables, plus worksheets and stuff like that. Oh, and there are some example characters too, as an index. So yeah, that's Mythic Roleplaying. Frank asked what book to get. I've already stated the basic difference, that being the GM emulator is a subset of the core Mythic Roleplaying rules. So if you want a complete rules light narratively driven, and player-focused roleplaying game, which will be played without there being a human GM, then Mythic Roleplaying is the complete experience. If you want to play without a GM but aim to use another set of role playing rules, then you just need the Mythic GM emulator. It is that simple. The Mythic GM emulator extracts the bits you need from the earlier Mythic role playing book if you intend to run a game with another set of role playing game rules. Thus, if you want to use Savage Worlds or DD 5e or, as in my case, GURPS, whatever game system you'd like, then you just need this book, the GM emulator. And I'd advise buying the separate book too, because that way you don't have to do all the work of extraction for yourself. And hey, the artwork is still terrible. Arguably worse. I don't think I need to say much more on that. For most people, the GM emulator is the most useful choice. Okay, so we're nearly done, but I did want to mention the Mythic GM emulator card deck. And This is a recent innovation being released just this year to cards, which is basically just another department of drivethroughrpg.com and it's well worth a look. In short, it's a card deck that replaces the fate chart and the three random event tables. The Mythic deck works very well and is a definite improvement. Much as I do like a good random table, the Mythic deck greatly speeds up play. Additionally, the Mythic GM Emulator deck comes with a basic outline of play that is a appraisee of the Mythic GM Emulator book, and this allows beginners to grasp how it's used. The instructions come in a PDF and outline how the deck's used in a fair bit of detail. But what I particularly like is that the deck also incorporates further improvements in Mythic that came with the two Mythic Variations books. This mostly means that you get to ask what are called complex questions, action-type questions, and descriptive questions. Let's say we go into a room when everything is trashed. We might ask, what happened here? That's a complex question because it's not a yes-no answer type question. Say you want to know what the monster looks like. We can ask, what does the monster look like? But it's another complex question. Mythic Variations takes the approach started with the random event generators in the GM Emulator book, and it adds random tables to generate short answers to these kinds of action or descriptive questions. The deck handles this very neatly by allowing you to draw cards at random which have the words from those tables already printed up. So in short, placing two cards side by side generates a quick answer. It's neat. That said, you probably have to see it to really get what I'm on about. But hey, such are the limits of podcasting. So yeah, the GM Emulator deck is a definite recommend from me. Plus, there's none of the shitty art on the cards. Just the Mythic logo. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings me finally to the question that I posed earlier. Why can't some players trust the Mythic GM? And that's a good question. I think a lot of people find it hard to believe that role-playing games can be as they might put it, reduced to basically asking yes-no answers and outsourcing that to a random table. But of course, that's entirely missing the subtleties of the mythic fate chart. It's also, in my view, a mystification of the GM's role. In my experience, when I reflect on my role as GM, a lot of my time at the table is spent doing one of two things. I'm either adjudicating rules or I'm answering questions. I mean, once I've outlined the scene and described the key features, that's what it boils down to. The players either ask clarifying questions, a lot of which have yes-no answers, and then they declare an action. Once they've declared, I adjudicate the outcome using the rules in question. In a rules light game, there exists a belief that the GM is more powerful than in a rules-heavy game. But I'm not so sure about that claim a game with a lot of crunchy bits what most people conflate with rules complexity but really is a different thing a game with crunchy bits for the characters gives the players options to influence the situation in very concrete ways a game with fewer crunchy bits requires the players to improvise their abilities and seek to gain influence over the situation but does the lightness of a game give the gm more power in the end As playing Mythic will show you, it's not much fun to push your own agenda too strongly in play. Neither is it much fun to allow the players to get whatever they want all the time either. There exists an ever-shifting power balance between the GM and the players. Anyway, where am I going with this? Well, imagine you are playing Mythic. There are four players and no GM. We are using the Mythic emulator. When we ask a question, it's the players who decide how likely a yes might be. If it's 50-50, or they don't care much, then the fate chart will decide based on the chaos factor's influence. But, in starting Chaos five situation, it will be a 50-50 chance. But the GM in this case is totally impartial. The players decide what questions to ask, what the odds are, how to interpret the result, and when logic can suffice. Even the random events need interpretation by the players. There's even the I don't know rule in Mythic. If you're not sure what the answer means, ditch it. I put it to you that this is a player-driven game. What the players expect is driving the action. But the players usually don't like to be confronted with this kind of awesome responsibility, and that's why they offload the adjudication to the GM. It's why they offload the describing to the GM too. And the question answering. Players are chicken when it comes to taking responsibility for the game. I have lost count of the times that I have been made to feel that the death of a character was my fault as GM. Or that a given random encounter is also my fault when the players don't deal with it very well. And I have been told I am, at times, too harsh and, at the same time, too stingy. It's all my fault. And that might be true. Or... The players might be projecting their expectations onto my game in giving me feedback on the mismatch if they had to play with a truly neutral emulator gm they'd have no one but themselves to blame for the outcome and that's why i think some players don't want to risk using a gm emulator they believe they can influence a human gm in their favor and they are probably right Where does that leave us then? Well, yep, Frank, you can use Mythic's solo engine to run entire games using the Mythic role-playing engine. You can also use just the GM emulator to run tests on new rule systems, short encounters, learn how a game runs, and also test adventures, all from the comfort of your own hobby shed. No other people required. There's actually a large community of solo role-players for whom Mythic and several other solo engines are the usual way of playing For many, solo play is preferred. It's a versatile approach, and I personally love it. For the general GM, reading Mythic can be an interesting quest into how the game might be played a bit differently. I have experimented with, and secretly used, the Mythic GM emulator at a regular game, in which I was the active GM. I did this to try and increase the strength of the neutral arbiter part of my role. You know, I'm an old softy, but when I use mythic, I can become colder and harder. Do we find that plus five vorpal sword on the orc boss's body? We've not seen it anywhere yet. Mythic helps me to remember that it's very unlikely. Roll a no and just say so. (laughs) So... Anyway, we've had a detailed look at the Mythic Adventures books. I hope that it helps to answer your questions, Frank. I hope it helps all the other listeners to get their head around what I am on about when I talk about solo role playing as well. But in the end, if you want to know more, go and buy the book for yourself. Just remember, the art's crap. And that's the end of the show. Um, a big thanks to Frank T from Frank T's liner notes for his call in that pretty much sparked the entire episode, and thanks also Frank for being an epic patron of Roleplay Rescue, keeping the show going with your support and uh, cash. Thanks also to the other callers, Jason and Spencer, muchly appreciated for the feedback on the last Silo episode. Finally, thank you to you, the listener, for your patience and engagement with the episode. I hope you found it interesting and perhaps even useful. Please let me know what you think by calling in. Thank you. And that's it for another episode. My name is Che Webster, and this has been episode 410 of Roleplay Rescue. See you again next time. Game on.